This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Zombie by Joyce Carol Oates, which was published in The New Yorker in October of 1994. A true zombie would be mine forever. He would obey me, saying, Yes, master, and no master. He would kneel before me, saying, I love you, master. There is no one but you, master. The story was chosen by Akhil Sharma, who's the author of the novel's Family Life and An Obedient Father, which will be reissued in a revised version this month. Hi, Akhil. Hey, Deborah. Welcome. This is your third time on the podcast, and the last two times you discussed stories by Tobias Wolff and Jeffrey Eugenides. What made you choose Joyce Carol Oates this year? I mean, I have an odd relationship to this. Uh, the story, Joyce Carol Oates was my teacher. One of the characters is named Akhil. Akhil is an unusual name, and uh, I remember reading it, wondering if she used my name deliberately, mm-hmm. and hoping that the character got murdered or something amazing happened so that I would be a larger part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, you survive in the story. <laughs> I know. I was disappointed. <laughs> um, well, we won't give away any more than that. Um, this story is an attempt to sort of distill into fictional form the story of Jeffrey Dahmer and also, according to Joyce, uh, Ted Bundy. So it's obviously not easy reading. Why do you think that a writer like Joyce Carol Oates, who has little in common with Jeffrey Dahmer or any serial killer, would choose this subject matter for a story? My sense of from what I've read by her is her imagination tends to get activated when it's brought into contact with things that are very different from our own, right? Almost everything that you see by her is very different from our own life. And there's something that seems to cause her talent to really bubble and jump in that situation. I mean, I feel like you see that in the voice, that the talent that is generating the voice is detached slightly from the characters that the voices are being attributed to. The voice is manifesting the insanity through punctuation, through slight switches between past tense and present tense. When the character shifts it to reverie, the shift is being justified on the level of literary, uh, figurative speech. And because the writing is, is existing so clearly and distinctively in a literary sense, that's why I feel that there is, for me, there was a slight disjunction between that and the subject. Like, that's why it doesn't completely belong to the subject, for me. Mm -hmm. So perhaps we're reading two stories simultaneously. One is is this character's story, and one is the author's story. Yes. um, Which is an interesting way to, to read and to write. The story came out in The New Yorker in 94, and then was expanded into a novel, which came out the following year in 1995. And I asked Joyce about that timing, whether the story was excerpted from an existing novel or not. And she said she had written it as a story. She said, I thought the story was finished until I saw it in The New Yorker and only then realized that it was just the beginning. When you read it in this form, does it feel complete to you? It does feel complete. Um, To me, it feels very satisfying. I think we should hear the story now and then we'll talk some more. So here's Akhil Sharma reading Zombie by Joyce Carol Oates. Zombie. My name is QP, and I'm 29 years old, three months. I see my probation officer, Mr. T, Thursdays, 10 a.m., and my therapist, Dr. E, Mondays and Thursdays, 4.30 p.m. My group therapy session with Dr. B, is Tuesdays, 7 to 8.30 p.m. I am a registered student at Dale County Business College, where I am enrolled in two three-credit courses for the spring semester, Introduction to Accounting and Computer Graphics. My residence is 118 Church Street, Mount Vernon, Michigan, which is close by the State University campus Seven miles from Dale, but no inconvenience for me. I have my van. I drive everywhere in my Ford van. 
It is a 1987 model, no longer new, but reliable. My American flag decal in the rear window. At 118 Church Street, I am caretaker for a rental property. The house is a tall, narrow, red brick Victorian with a smushed look like somebody moved his thumb across it. It is three stories high with an attic and a deep cellar with a stone foundation in which at the front the date 1892 is chiseled. University students rent our rooms. As caretaker of the property, I live in the ground floor rear because that is most convenient. The stairs to the cellar are close by and nobody can get to them except by passing my door. My tools and equipment and workbench are in the cellar. But I have access to all the floors, of course, because I am caretaker and I'm grateful for this. My master key will open the door to any room in the house. Most of the students who rent with us are foreign students from India, China, Pakistan, Africa. Often they have trouble with their locks at first, so I'm called upon to help, and I'm always obliging, though speaking no more than is necessary and making no eye contact. All the houses on Church Street are old, spacious Victorians. They used to be single-family residences. Now they're rooming houses like ours or office buildings. QP Caretaker is neatly printed on a small white card beside my door. I printed it myself in black ink. Last night, I was working late in the cellar, repairing seepage damage in the cistern. I'm a hard worker once I get started and lose track of time. I did not require sleep. I did not take my 10 p.m. medication. And so sometime in the middle of the night, I climbed to the attic and looked out the window at the night sky where there was a moon so bright it hurt my eyes. Shreds of cloud being blown across the moon clotted and cobwebbed like angry thoughts. So shameful, Dad said. But now we're going to turn over a new leaf, aren't we, son? My father is a distinguished physicist at the university. I know it has been upsetting to him to learn certain things about his only son and to have these things a matter of public record. How does your client plead? Judge L asked. And my lawyer said, Your Honor, my client pleads guilty. In my heart, I did not plead guilty because I was not guilty and am not. But it was a racial matter too. The boy is black and QP is white. What can you do? So my lawyer counseled me. But I'm on good terms with the family again. This is a relief to me. I have told them how sorry I am that I have hurt them and how much it means to me that they trust me. I will live up to your trust from now on, I told them. It is hard for me to hug them, especially Dad. There is a stiffness in all our bones. But I do it, and I believe I'm doing it correctly. Mom and Big Sis were crying, and there was a stinging moisture in my eyes. When Judge L pronounced, two years, there was a long moment when my heart stopped before he added, suspended sentence. His eyes, which I had no choice, my lawyer counseled me, but to look at, reflected severity, but also kindness. Judge L is known to Dad, and Dad is known to Judge L. Mount Vernon is not a small city, but important men know one another here as elsewhere, I believe. Afterward, Dad shook my hand so hard it hurt and did embrace me, and there were tears in his eyes behind his glasses. Now we're all going to turn over a new leaf. You get to the attic by steep stairs at the rear of the third floor corridor. I made my way silently in wool socks, not wishing to wake up the young Pakistani graduate student whose room is almost under the stairs. Ramid would not be a safe specimen, or any of them beneath this roof. I never think of it. In the attic, there was a strong, sharp smell of dust and that sweetish sour odor of dead mice. I inhaled deeply, shining my flashlight into the attic's corners. Shadows leap like bats. When light moves, shadows leap. I am not so comfortable in the attic as in the cellar where I have my things. 
The space in the attic is like certain dreams I had in the detention center, where shapes meant to be solid start to melt, and there is no control. Unlike the cellar, which is safe underground, the attic is four stories above ground. The concentration of cosmic rays is higher at higher elevations on Earth. The landlord made the suggestion last Sunday that I clean out the attic to reduce the fire hazard, and I will get to that soon. The cellar is my number one priority right now, but I will get to the attic next. Now we're going to turn over a new leaf, son, aren't we? And I said, yes, Dad. The idea of creating a zombie for my own purposes came to me in a brainstorm five years ago. Yes, at such rare times, you can feel the electrically charged neurons of the prefrontal brains realigning themselves like filings drawn by a magnet. The Earth is continually bombarded by high-speed cosmic rays. A voice was lecturing. An amplified voice I did not even recognize at first was Dad's. Cosmic rays from outer space, from a distance of millions of light years, more concentrated at higher elevations. It was a darkened lecture amphitheater at the university where I had hidden myself to hear Professor R.P. lecture at his students. Perhaps I was seeking some knowledge or some secret. I must have nodded off in the back row, and when I woke up, I did not where I was at first, which happened sometimes then when I was not so much in control of myself and going for as long as 48 hours unsleeping and crashing wherever I might be. If Dad saw me there amid his many students, he gave no sign, of course, but he could not see me, I'm sure, in the darkness. On an illuminated screen at the front of the amphitheater was a computer simulation of a section of the universe 200 million light years across, indicating how the universe evolved from its early smoothness and equitable distribution of matter to the present condition of superclusters, galaxies, and dark matter. As much as 90% of the universe's mass is in unseen black holes, most of the universe is therefore undetectable by our instruments and may not obey the laws of physics as we know them. Professor R.P.'s several hundred students were busy taking notes. It came to me that any one of them, almost, would be a suitable specimen for a zombie. Except, you would want a healthy young person, male. You would want somebody with fight and vigor in him. But the university students have always been forbidden to me after that first and only ignorant incident that, lucky for QP, turned out okay. It was dark behind the dorm, and the kid was drunk and stooped over, vomiting and gagging. And when he glanced up, hearing me, the tire iron slammed down over his ear, crashing him to the ground before he could really register seeing me. So it was okay. I was wearing my hooded jacket, and there were no witnesses. Yet I panicked and ran, as I would never do now. But it was okay. A lesson was learned. The fact is, any university student with the possible exception of certain of the foreign students who are so far from home would be immediately missed. Their families care about them, and they have families. A safer specimen for a zombie would be somebody from out of town, a hitchhiker or a drifter or a junkie, if in good condition, or from the black projects downtown, somebody nobody gives a damn for, somebody who should never have been born. I hurried straight from the amphitheater to the psych library to look up the surgical method, lobotomy. This is why. Seeing the universe like that, you see how futile it is to believe that any galaxy matters, let alone any star of any galaxy or any planet the size of not even a grain of sand in all that void, let alone any continent or any nation or any state or any country or any city or any individual. The idea came to me at that time, too, because I was having trouble keeping my dick hard with guys, awake eyes, observing me in intimate quarters. I was living in my two-room place on 12th Street at Reardon, which was my first real place away from Dale Springs, and I was working for a moving company, or maybe I had just quit that time Dad dropped by. Age 24 and time to be on my own, I told them, and I meant it. The week after Labor Day, 1989, bunny gloves had been missing 12 days, but there was never anything in the Mount Vernon Gazette or on local TV. Why would there be? 
set out from Detroit to Minnesota and not a trace. Many hundreds, thousands in a single year, like sparrows of the air, they fly and fall and disappear and not a trace. Dale Springs is where dad and mom and my sister Ruthie live and where QP grew up, a suburb of Mount Vernon, six miles west of the university. Downtown Mount Vernon is five miles to the south, yet dad said he had dropped by to visit me. The rapping at the door, my eyes flew open and my heart beat in a cold panic because now was not the time. I called out something and was up from the bed, stumbling, pulling on my trousers, zipping up, dragging the khaki blanket up over the cot, the stained sheets, the sweet, stale smell. Okay, I said, I'm cool, okay? And it was dad, my dad, dropped by to see how I was. The chain latch was on the door. Good thing, because when I turned the knob, there was Dr. R.P. in the crack, smiling, wearing his sand-colored corduroy face with his tweed asshole of a mouth and his glistening white dentures in the crack of the door. I fumbled, opening the door, Dad's eyes a few inches away, out of a dream of bunny gloves and fondling, his voice as it was before the change in it, and his eyes muddy green as knowing deepened in them and the pupils shrank to pinpricks. Quentin, hello, am I disturbing you? Dad filled the doorway, staring and breathless from the stairs, his black plastic professor glasses riding the bridge of his nose. When his professor goatee went from brown to gray, he shaved it, but there is a shadow of the goatee on his face. Son, asked how I was, and I said, and how was he, and things at home, and mom and Ruthie send their love, and the eyes darting sidelong and the nostrils widening a pause, and then asking, that smell, son, what is it? Smell? I was standing, blocking Dad's view, but could not block his capacity for sniffing, smelling. I looked vague and surprised, looking about the room as if I might see the smell. Just some gym things, Dad. Sweaty socks, jogging shoes, towels, and stuff like that. Dad asked, so reasonable, where is it coming from? Coming from? Under your bed. My bed? Dad made a move, but I was blocking his way. His face was beginning to go red in that way of an old man's face blotching in patches. He said, it's more than gym things. It smells like garbage. You don't have raw garbage in here, son, do you? Distinguished professor of physics, former chair of the department and a senior fellow of the Michigan State Institute of Advanced Research. That time dad came to get me where I was doing homework upstairs in my room I was 12 years old in seventh grade. He yanked me by the arm downstairs and into the garage to show me the magazine and other stuff I had hidden behind stacks of old newspapers that he had found. And his face splashed and furious, and at that time, he did wear a goatee, and this too seemed livid with outrage. Twisting the magazines in his hands to spare himself the sight of the covers and the drawings somebody had done on them in red felt pen, and the insides with more such drawings on centerfold models of male muscle bodies and parts of certain photos scissored out. This is sick, Quentin. This is disgusting. I never want to see anything like this again. We won't tell your mother. Starting to say more, but his voice gave out. Together we burned the evidence back behind the garage where mom would not see. He was looking at me like that now, dad's eyes behind his shiny glasses, he was 54 years old, with hairy black nostrils widening and contracting and widening like a fish's gills. How can you live in such squalor, son? It's so hard for me to comprehend. Between my bed springs and the mattress were the fishing knife and the others, but I could not make a sudden move to get them. I was staring at my hands, which were trembling as if the building were vibrating from traffic. I did wonder, could I strangle Dad? But he would put up a struggle, and he is strong, and we would be so close. I was staring at my hands as if I had never seen them before, seeing the fingers were stubby and the nails uneven and broken and edged with grime. How many times I had scrubbed my hands with soap and cleaned the nails with a knife blade, and yet it had all come back. And then the answer came to me. I bet I know what it is, Dad. A dead rat. A dead rat? 
or a mouse, maybe mice. There are dead mice in here? Dad's face was contorted with disgust. I said, trying not to stammer. I know it's not the way you and Mom brought me up, Dad. I'm sorry. Quentin, how long has it been like this in this room? Not long, Dad, a day or two. Aren't you bothered by it yourself? I'm going to do some cleaning this weekend. You sleep here in this smell, Quentin, and you're not bothered? I'm bothered, Dad. I just don't get uptight about it. It's very disturbing to me, son, that you might be lying to me. Well, I don't mean to lie, Dad. I just don't know what you're asking. I'm asking if something is under your bed or in those bedclothes or on the floor and why it smells. You know what I'm asking. Apart from the mice, Dad, I said, I don't know what you're asking. It went on like that. Dad's mouth shaped certain words and my mouth shaped certain words. And it was familiar to me. And there was a comfort in that. And finally he gave up as he always has given up. And he asked, Quentin, how would you like to come home for dinner tonight? And I said, thanks, Dad, but I'm not hungry. I guess I've already eaten. Frontal lobotomy. Irreversible psychosurgical procedure in which nerve fibers in the frontal lobes of the brain are severed by incision for the alleged relief of mental agitation, compulsive mental cognition, and the physical behavior in schizophrenics and other emotionally disturbed persons. This page I tore out of the textbook. I could almost see my zombie materializing before my eyes. Also from Psychosurgery, 1942, by Dr. Walter Freeman of George Washington University. When the patient is unconscious, I pinch the upper eyelid between thumb and finger and bring it well away from the eyeball. I then insert the point of the transorbital leukotome into the conjunctival sac, taking care not to touch the skin or lashes, and move the point around until it settles against the vault of the orbit. I then drop to one knee beside the table in order to aim the instrument parallel with the bony ridge of the nose and slightly toward the midline. When the five centimeter mark is reached, I pull the handle of the instrument as far laterally as the rim of the orbit will permit in order to sever fibers at the base of the frontal lobe. I then return the instrument halfway to its previous position and drive it further to a depth of seven centimeters from the margin of the upper eyelid. Again, I cite the instrument as carefully as possible and take a profile photograph of it in this position. This is the nearest method to precision of which the method can boast. Then comes the ticklish path. Arteries are within reach. Keeping the instrument in the frontal plane, I move it 15 degrees to 20 degrees medially and about 30 degrees laterally. Return it to the mid position and withdraw it by twisting movement, at the same time exercising considerable pressure on the eyelids to prevent hemorrhage. Then to the opposite side, usually an identical instrument, but freshly sterilized. There were several diagrams of the procedure of the transorbital lobotomy, and I ripped these out too. Mom and Dad had hoped for me to become a scientist like Dad or a doctor, but things had not turned out that way. But I knew I could perform a transorbital lobotomy, even if it was in secret. Dr. Freeman stated that he did as many as 30 lobotomies a day sometimes, often with only a humble ice pick. So why not QP? At Tuesday's group sessions, Dr. B urged us to speak from the heart. There were 11 of us. Eyes are avoided. When it was my turn, my shoulders hunched up and I was staring at my shoes which are jogging shoes, all stained and rust-colored. I said how ashamed I was to betray the loving trust of my mom and dad, not just once, but many times since the age of 16. I wished I could turn the clock back to infancy, I said, and start time again, when I was pure and good, when I was with God. I said I believed in God, but did not think he believed in me, because I was not worthy. There is a way mom's face creases and collapses when she cries, and my face collapsed like this. And the guys were embarrassed and looked away. One of them, a cool black jock with a shaved head, passed me a tissue. I was talking fast now, like a runaway trailer truck down a mountain road. 
said how sorry I was about the 10-year-old boy I had molested, but did not give such details as that he was black and retarded and a natural zombie, I'd thought. I said I did not know what had happened, whether I had approached the boy myself in the alley back behind the dumpster where my van was parked or whether the boy had followed me there and picked me up without my knowing it. Because sometimes things happen to me I cannot understand, too fast for me to understand. The boy had demanded money from me or he would tell on me. He demanded $10, and when I gave him $10, he demanded $20, and when I gave him $20, he demanded $50, and when I gave him $50, he demanded $100, which is when I lost control and tried to hurt him. But I did not hurt him, I swear. By this time, I was stammering, and my face was wet with tears, and the guys were looking away from me. But Dr. B asked, had I known this boy for very long, and had I felt affection for him? And I was unable to speak for a while, and then I said, yes, doctor, that is the reason I lost control. After each of our sessions, Dr. B fills out a report for the probation office. Dr. E and Mr. T also, I'm not allowed to see these reports, which are confidential, but often I am told things to make me hopeful. Quentin, you're making real progress lately, aren't you? Getting in touch with your emotions, Quentin. A true zombie would be mine forever. He would obey me saying, yes, master, and no master. He would kneel before me saying, I love you, master. There is no one but you, master. And so it would be. A true zombie could not say a thing that was not, but only a thing that was. His eyes would be open and clear, but there would be nothing inside them seeing, nothing passing judgment like you who observe me and who think your own secret thoughts, always and forever passing judgment. A zombie would say, God bless you, master. He would say, fuck me in the ass, master, until I bleed blue guts. He would beg. He would be respectful at all times. He would never laugh or smirk. He would cuddle like a teddy bear. He would rest his head on my shoulder like a baby, or I would lay my head on his shoulder like a baby. We would lie beneath the covers in my bed in the caretaker's room listening to the march wind and the bells of the music college tower chiming and we would count the chimes until we fell asleep at exactly the same moment. I purchased an ice pick, November 1989. Cruising the van along the Lake Michigan shore, I stopped at a little crossroad store and there was no trouble. Nobody seemed suspicious. My fish-gutting knife, my 12-inch stainless steel German steak knife, my Swiss Army jackknife, and others of my collection I already had. Began my collection in seventh grade knowing it would be put to use someday, but not when, or what use exactly. Dr. E, who is my personal therapist, paid by dad, is always asking, what is the nature of your fantasies, Quentin? And I'm blank and puzzled blushing like in school when I could not answer a question of my teachers or even comprehend it. I don't think I have any, what you call fantasies, doctor. I don't know. At the time of bunny gloves, raisin eyes, big guy, I did not have access to my caretaker's quarters and the cellar of 118 church, but only my van and the two-room place on 12th Street, the tub in the bathroom. My procedures were crude, and I was continually thwarted in my experiments. Bunny gloves, who I had such hopes for, convulsed like a madman when the ice pick entered the top of his left eyeball and screamed through the sponge gag, actually snapping the bailing wire securing his ankles. But he did not regain consciousness, dying in 12 minutes. My first zombie, a grade of F. Raisin eyes, lived for seven hours, sometimes almost conscious, but I had to lift the eyelid of his remaining eye. I only did one and secured it with adhesive tape. Big guy was the most promising, for by then I had learned to use the ice pick, skillfully aiming the instrument parallel with the bony ridge of the nose, as Dr. Freeman described. Also, big guy for a part black, part Indian dropout basketball player, junkie dealer from Lansing was healthy. And his bones so long and hard, his muscles, his penis like a length of blood sausage, his skin a deep, rich plum black, I loved to lick with my tongue and gnaw with my teeth. Yet big guy disappointed me like the others for he never regained consciousness in any true sense of the word after the lobotomy and after I removed the gag. 
breathed deep, shuddering, snoring gasps. I worried they might be heard through the walls of my room if there was anybody to hear them. Big Guy lived approximately 15 hours, dying, I think, as I was fucking him in the ass to discipline him as a zombie, and I only comprehended he was dead when during the night, waking needing to take a piss, I felt how cold he was. His arms and legs slung over me as I'd arranged them, already stiffened in rigor mortis, so I feared I would be locked in his embrace. My first three zombies, all Fs, yet I did not give up hope, nor have I to this day. Mom called and left a message on the answering tape. At the time, I was up on the second floor using a screwdriver to open the rusted furnace vent in Akhil's room. Akhil is from Calcutta, a physics graduate student, very shy and dark-skinned and must be in his mid-twenties at least, but looks 15, and his English is so soft and whispery, I have to stoop to hear him, taking care not to make eye contact. Thank you, mister, he said. And in our mutual awkwardness, I did glance at him, and he was looking at me, his eyes liquidy brown, a glisten in them. My voice sounded American, a little forced, but I believe I said what any caretaker of a rooming house would say, it's my job. Mom's call got screwed up on the answering tape, erased, asking me would I like to come for dinner Sunday, probably. Sorry to be missing so many classes at Dale, especially since I am determined to turn over a new leaf this time, and in intro to accounting, I fucked up the first quiz and missed the second, and since the arrest and the hearing and the suspended sentence, Dad looks at me differently. It's as if he is fearful of me where before he was impatient and judgmental, as though Q, his only son, were a student feeling a course of his. I know he is thinking, no matter the shame to the P family that Q is an admitted sex offender, at least Q is not in the state prison. At least his 10-year-old victim was not injured, or worse. Dad saying, it's an investment in our joint future son, smiling at me with his wrinkly little pink asshole mouth and his professor eyes narrowed inside his glasses. Mom hugs me and stands on tiptoe to kiss my cheek and her bones are like dried sticks I could break in my hands so I stand very straight and still, not breathing to inhale her smell. What that smell is, I don't know and do not name. You know we love you, Quentin. Mom is always saying like a tape when a button is punched. This time, things will turn out just fine. I said, that's right, Mom. I said, I'm sure going to see to that, Mom. Except I wake up here in my caretaker's bed at the ground floor rear of 118 Church Street, and I remember my computer class was the day before where I'm driving out to Dale and it's the wrong day or the wrong time. So I will drive out anyway since the van is in motion headed in that direction and I'm superstitious about changing course on impulse. And if there's a hitchhiker, I will observe him impersonally contemplating what sort of zombie he might make. But I'm not tempted so close to home and out at the college, which is this crappy fifth-rate business school everybody at the university looks down their asses at, I will park my van and stroll across campus thinking I will visit my profs and tell them there was an illness in the family, but I can't find their offices or nobody's there when I do or I get sidetracked trailing some young black guys from my accounting class into the student union where I'll have a cup of coffee and see who's around if I recognize anybody or if they recognize me, or even if they don't. I'm carrying my textbooks and I'm dressed okay, not with my hair in a ponytail any longer since the arrest. Although I am wearing raisin eyes, funky leather slouch brim hat, and bunny gloves, fur-lined gloves are in the pocket of my $300 sheepskin jacket, and my aviator-style amber prescription sunglasses are a copy of Big Eyes Shades. So I look pretty cool, I think, for an ordinary white guy pushing 30, his hairline receding, and it's surprising how friendly the Dale students are and how trusting. All of them commuters like me living in Mount Vernon or the country. Even a girl will pull out a chair to sit at my table if she sees friends of hers with me, or even if they're not friends exactly. Hi, she'll say, like a high school cheerleader, like the girls in my high school who looked through QP like he didn't exist. You're my computer class, aren't you? I should mention my hand-tooled bronze leather boots, a little big for me, courtesy of Rooster, 
of last September Great Heart Avenue in Detroit. I have never selected any specimen except the black boy I don't count from the Roosevelt projects in Mount Vernon or vicinity, but it is good to keep in practice by speaking with them, though mostly I listen to learn their words, their slang, the way they move their hands, their mouths, their eyes. Though shrinking from their eyes, sometimes driving one of them home, going a few miles out of my way, it's no trouble, and they will remember my face and the green Ford van with the American flag decal on the back window, a big decal exactly fitting the back window. If I needed a character witness, for instance, at a trial, I think they would remember QP, if not the name, than the fact that I was kind. Once let a skinny Chinese kid my sheepskin jacket on a freezing winter night, no question asked, and he returned it. His name Chow or Chi, with a ping sound somewhere in it, and his eyes shining black. One time, one of them was fighting the drug, his eyes rolling sideways in his head like marbles, saying, hey man, I guess I don't want to do this, okay? Let me go, man. And I told him he could stay for a while, it was all right to stay for a while, and I'd pay him for his trouble. And he said he wouldn't tell anybody if I let him go. But I knew better, and I tightened the cord so his big eyes bulged, and his skin was ashy plum, and the lips I could not take my eyes off were ashy, and it started shooting through me like electricity. He knows he's caught on, no turning back, which is the point that must be reached, the threshold of the black hole that sucks you in a fraction of a second before, and you're free but a fraction of a second later and you're sucked into the black hole and my dick hard as a club and big as a club and the sparks of my eyes and I did not stammer as I had when first he swung into the van, the cool dude eyeing whitey. It was two barbiturates I gave him, mashed and in vodka. I said, I'm not a sadist, I'm not a torturer. I think you're terrific. I asked you to cooperate and you will not be hurt. I was excited. I had to unzip. He saw and he knew, you know even when you don't, I will not hurt you, I said, if you lay still. But he was struggling, he was crying. I saw he was just a kid, maybe 19 years old. I jammed the sponge into his mouth so he was almost choking and I had to be careful. I did not want to lose him. He was tied, he was drugged and should have been anesthetized, but it was taking too long. He was in the tub naked and the water was running and that freaked him. He knows, knows. Though he did not see the ice pick yet, which I had hidden, sneaky supple kid with a gold filling in a front tooth, and I brought him to the apartment with a promise of home-cooked food and vodka, and he'd been thinking he'd be sucked off by Whitey and paid for his trouble and maybe clear out Whitey's possessions, but that was not how it came about, and the panic in his eyes said that this was so. Reddish kinky hair and a red sheen to his skin, like ox blood shoe polish, Good-looking, and he knew it, but it's too late now. I secured his head in the clamp and brought the ice pick to his right eye, lifting the eyelid as Dr. Freeman described. But when I inserted it, he struggled, screaming through the sponge, and there was a gush of blood, and I came. I lost control and came. So hard, I kept coming and coming like a convulsion. I couldn't stop or even breathe. I was groaning and gasping for air, and when it was over and I was in control again, I saw the damage I had done. The ice pick rammed up to the hilt in his eye, up into the brain, and he was dying. He was dead. Another fuck up and no zombie. And then the disposal off, the heavy weight off, a downer. Must drive at the speed limit and obey all traffic regulations and must not act suspicious. A landfill or dump is most strategic, of course, where the ground is already broken and far from home base, 50, 70, 100 miles. The extra effort is worth it, like buying a new wig, whiskers every time. Vacant lots, wooded areas near parks, risky because kids play in them. But empty marshland beyond the interstate where nobody ever goes is a good bet. How many times I keep mementos but no records? I memorize what's required, then move on, and sometimes forget but now I have the basement of this old house. A little sickness in the air from so much fragrance everywhere. Somebody left behind new anthology of English verse. I leafed through it in the student union and read these lines 
and something rang in me like the bells of the music college because now it is spring, it is April, and my first year of probation is behind me. The house at 118 Church Street, built 1892, crumbling stone foundation. The cellar was renovated in the 1950s, so there are two sections, the new and the old. The new has a poured concrete floor and reinforced walls with beaver board paneling. The gas furnace is here, water heater, fuse box, caretaker's workbench, and such tools as my electric power drill and Cherokee chainsaw. The old section of the cellar is never used. It has a hard-packed earth floor. The ceiling rafters are low and filthy with cobwebs, walls rotted. The dry stone cistern unused for decades. A strong smell of drains and some seepage in the rainy months, but I've installed a second pump. To get back there, you move on your haunches slowly. You need a good flashlight. You need a will that cannot be broken. The cistern has almost been converted and will be ready for use soon. And if a zombie is a failure, there is a remainder of the cellar for safe disposal in the earth. And there is a new door replacing the old rotted door. And last week, I purchased a steel padlock from Sears for extra security. I was allowed to plead guilty to sexual misdemeanor committed against a minor. The lawyer dad hired for me and the prosecution lawyer worked it out. And Judge L was understanding, where money changes hands, and it is the word of an inexperienced white man, unmarried, 29 years old, against the word of a black boy from the projects, and this black boy, 10 years old, is from a dysfunctional family. There is no problem knowing where justice lies. And QP was repentant. He was ashamed and had learned his lesson. One look at him, you knew. Two years suspended sentence, psychotherapy, counseling, regular reporting to probation officer, Mr. T., Agreed. Leaving Judge L's chambers, I was shaky. I was wiping my face, and Dad was gripping me by the elbow. Buck up, son, quote-unquote, everything is fine, son. And outside, Mom and Ruthie and Reverend Eckhorn, who is Mom's friend and who vouched for me to the authorities, were waiting. And I was wearing a new suit of brown checks, and I was wearing a beige bow tie, and my hair had been cut, trimmed, neat at the ears and the nape of the neck. And I was not crying now, but smiling and hugging my family. And I was shaking Reverend Eckhorn's hand, saying, Thank you, thank you. I'm so happy, so grateful. Thank you for your faith in me. A warm rain speckled my face. Dad handed me the car keys with a request for me to drive. And I understood it was to show how he trusted me. The family trusted me, and I would not let them down ever again. Driving out of the city, Dale Springs, where the houses are set on large lots and the streets are tree-lined, I felt such a sense of homecoming and being loved, and I kept well within the speed limit, not minding when other drivers honked their horns and passed me impatiently. Ruthie, who is big sis even now, age 35 and principal of a high school, looking after a kid brother, saying, Quinn was always the one of us who could drive a car, then adding quick, I mean is, right, Quinn? I grinned into the rear view mirror, right, Ruthie? Driving home, a warm, rainy, windy day, Dad beside me in the passenger seat, stroking his chin where his goatee had been and Mom and Ruthie in the back. I could almost not remember why I was so happy and feeling so free, thinking of black cock, shy, shrinking boy penis like a baby rabbit, skinned. I'd held it in my hand, tickling the tip with the tip of the ice pick, but the pills hadn't taken effect yet, and the boy panicked, beginning to bellow, even before he broke free and crashed through the locked rear door of the van. So help me God, I don't know how. And running, calling out for help, bellowing like a fire alarm rising louder and louder. My zombie. He had not asked for a nickel, really. He was trusting as a dog. Yet I could not trust him. They were asking me something, and I wasn't listening, but I must have answered, okay. Dad laid his hand on my shoulder. For the first time, driving that day, I believed I could feel the motion of the earth. The earth rushing through the emptiness of space, spinning on its axis, but you don't feel it. For to feel it is to be scared and happy at once and to know that nothing matters, but that you do what you do and what you do you are. And I felt it, and I knew I was moving into the future. There is no past anybody can get to, to alter things or even to know for sure what they were, but there is definitely a future. We're already in it. That was Akhil Sharma reading Zombie by Joyce Carol Oates.
The story appeared in The New Yorker in October of 1994 and was expanded into the novel Zombie, which was published by Dutton in 1995. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Akil, this story takes us into the mind and into the motivations of a deranged serial killer and puts us in the position of at least trying to understand this man. I feel as though over the years there have been so many debates about the moral ramifications of imagining yourself fictionally into the mind of someone like Hitler, say, or really um, psychopathic characters who've done harm in the world. So I'm wondering what you think about the moral stance of this story, or if that's even a question it makes sense to ask. Uh, I mean, if you think about fiction as just trying to reflect the world, then there is no moral stance, right? Because all we're doing is just representing the world as it is. To the extent that you are creating this thing and you're not reflecting the world as it is, because of course you are not reflecting the world as it is. You're inventing the world and you're choosing a subject matter. You bear a certain moral responsibility for whatever you're generating and presenting to the world. To me, it seems that the great thing that fiction does is it allows you to go into places safely, places that you wouldn't go otherwise or that you would uh, shy away from. And in that sense, I think of it as a, a very moral thing to choose to write things like this. I always wanted to ask her if uh, she used my name. But, you know, then you feel sort of shy and vain, like, hey, were you thinking of me when you were writing this? <laughs> um, if she was using your name um, on purpose, then she was kind to you. I know. I'm sort of disappointed because for me, <laughs> kindness would have been like a larger role. <laughs> you know, like... Um, do you think she's being kind to, to QP? Um, I, I mean, I think kindness might be the wrong word. What we're thinking about is, are we observing the person? Are we seeing the person? Because sometimes attention being seen is the thing that we provide others. And here, because the character is invented, the question then becomes like, is she observing the situation? Is she honoring the situation with the quality of her observation? It's interesting to hear you say she's observing the situation when she is inventing the situation. Everything is invented, right? Like um, you and I are talking, but to some extent I'm inventing you inside me, right? Because I'm imagining your thoughts. So she's inventing it, but the question is, is there a reality that is being observed? Is it connected to a reality? What is the thing that gets honored in the work of fiction? To me, the thing that's honored most, foremost here is the writing. I personally find the punctuation when the sentences become very long, when there are these shifts, just wonderful as a work of art. Like That's the thing that satisfies me. If we're then saying, okay, we have this quality of observation and talent what is it being attached to, right? And is the thing that is being attached to observed in enough detail that it takes on some of the moral weight of reality? For me, the moral weight of the world is brought into the moral weight of the story, primarily through 
the excerpt of that lunatic doctor who was performing 30 lobotomies a day and some of those details. It's interesting because Joyce also said that not until after the story came out did she have the feeling that she was kind of interrogating not only the notion of a serial killer, but the notion of scientific misconduct. Mm -hmm. Obviously, QP is not a scientist, and he's not conducting scientific experiments, but he's learning from them, and you can see the parallels. So do you think that the story is simply observing or disapproving or trying to point out something about the larger world of medicine? You know, I assume that the text that is excerpted is an actual text. And to that extent, it contains within it confusion and horror. But that text is such a small part of the story. To me, that's not where the attention is drawn or kept. But I think that's where the morality of the story, to the extent that we're talking about uh, morality that is separate from the morality of creating something, Right? Like there's morality in making something, in choosing to love and choosing to value language. But to the extent that there is a morality that is separate from that and that is drawn from the world, that occurs meaningfully in that excerpt, and it occurs less meaningfully for me in the reference to the way that justice is unfair. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the story gives us or tries to give us some understanding of how QP became what he became? I mean, we have a lot of family development. We see him at the age of 12, and, and we hear his own description of his motivations, what he's looking for. Do you think that we can understand on the basis of those things? Uh, I mean, not really. I mean, I wouldn't say that. Like, I, I don't think the story is set up to gain power through that type of psychological reality. I, I don't think the story belongs in that genre. It belongs in a genre of tormenting the reader, right? Like, um, the reason I don't think it is we're getting to understand QP is because, first, there isn't that quality of observation. And the quality of observation such as you know, how much is this guy earning? How does he manage his money? Where do these problems occur? So it's not working at that level of mimetic reality. To me, these explanations about the, you know, the pornography that's been cut out and all that stuff is gestural. Yeah, because, you know, lots of kids do weird stuff. They don't all end up like driving ice picks into other people's, you know, eyes. So I, I just, I don't think that that's what the story is attempting to do. So what is it attempting to do? The story is attempting to generate a set of experiences, horror, fascination, discomfort. I mean, the story exists largely in real time, which is super stressful as a reader. I think that the story at the very end, when it talks about the world spinning in a void, that's some of the anxiety, metaphysical force that the story is trying to bring in. The characters, the situations are there to give flesh to that anxiety. You know, it's a little bit like when you read The Death of Ivan Illich. It's not Tolstoy talking about religion. It's Tolstoy's anxiety. The story is basically giving form to an anxiety. And then the story is also such a pleasurable experience on a sentence level. Like, I love the punctuation. For example, my name is QP, comma, and I'm 29 years old, comma, three months. I see my probation officer, comma, Mr. T, comma, Thursdays, comma, 10 a.m., comma, and my therapist, comma, Dr. E, comma, Mondays and Thursdays. Just the very fact that you're beginning your first two paragraphs with that much punctuation is calling to attention that this is a written work, that this is a piece of constructed text. Uh, and so it's asking that you look at it that way and think about it that way, not having the full names, just that density. And what's weird is you have that level of density of punctuation, of literariness attached to somebody we don't yet feel confident is deserving of that ability, right? The writer is asking us to give credit where credit is not due. 
right? And that's just wonderful because basically the writer has gotten our interest and is now feeling around in her pockets trying to grab money. Mm-hmm. I Like, I love that um, um, at 118 Church Street, I'm caretaker for a rental property. The house is a tall, narrow, red brick Victorian with a smudged look, like somebody moved his thumb across it. You know, that image, the image of somebody's moved his thumb across it, I think I've seen it like 10,000 times, right? And so you don't expect it early inside a story, especially if it's a New Yorker story, the expectations or quality are so high. So when you see an image like this in a New Yorker story, when you've already had the writer mess with or ahead with all this punctuation, it feels again like the writer is jamming their thumb into your eye. It's a story that feels very much like intended to torture the reader. And then there's the the actual subject matter, which is torturing the reader. Interestingly, there are moments when the punctuation goes away. Yeah. Um, So when he's quoting his dad saying, but now we're going to turn over a new leaf, aren't we, son? No punctuation at all. I mean, there's that. but And then there's also those stream of consciousness moments, uh, which there's no punctuation. Uh, And... In those two, it feels very literary. Mm-hmm. And that literariness feels very much like a mismatch between who the character is and the amount of talent being given to the character mm-hmm. and to the voice. One of the things I really love about her, Rhodes, is she's a lot like Chekhov in that she has this voice that she can then bring and deploy almost everywhere. You know, when you're reading Joyce Carol you're not reading the story. You're reading Joyce Carol When you're reading Chekhov, you're not really reading the story. You're reading Chekhov. That's sort of how I feel about her. Her nonfiction is very different, and I would strongly recommend everybody who's listening to this podcast to go look up some of her essays. They're astonishing. Yeah, yeah. But let's let's think about QP and why there's that contradiction in him, because he is complicated. He isn't stupid. We hear a lot about his perceptions of what it is that he's doing or what it is that he wants, what he wants to create. We see him in conversation or hear him in conversation with his therapist asking him what his fantasies are and him sort of blankly saying, I don't think I have any, when we've just heard what his fantasies are. And we already know he's fully capable of hiding things. Do you think he is a secondary intelligence, or do you think he's kind of a a mastermind? A a mastermind in terms of sort of playing all of these people? Is that what you mean? Exactly. I don't know if that's a mastermind or if it's animal cunning, Mm -hmm. right? Like uh, an eight-year-old child will also lie and do stuff like that. So I don't think of this person as a mastermind in that sense. He does have the probation officer and the therapist convinced that he's getting better. Yeah, but I wonder about that quality. I don't know how, if you were to think about the probation officer or the therapist existing in the real world, how convinced they would be. Most social workers that I know who deal with criminals, et cetera, just assume that everything that the person is saying is a lie. And so the fact that here the the therapist is getting convinced is not convincing to me. It's not convincing, it's gestural in the same way that the judge saying two-year suspended sentence is gestural. Mm -hmm. I don't think that he is complicated because I think of him as too consistent. I can imagine somebody who is a serial killer also being fascinated with, like, shoes, right? Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think of him as complicated because he's too consistent for it. Mm -hmm. He says things like, um, Ramid would not be a safe specimen or any of them beneath this roof. I never think of it. And obviously, he's thinking of it. But that doesn't seem complicated. It just seems like a literary device, mm-hmm. right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, this is what you do to suggest this thing or that thing. I feel as though he tells us so clearly what he wants. He wants a zombie who loves him and is his sex slave, but also just has a wonderful kind of marriage with him where they, they lay their heads on each other's shoulders. And and there's even one one of his victims who he gets up in the night and he's worried that, you know, he won't be able to get out of his grasp because of rigor mortis. So he tells us that what he wants is someone alive to love him. But then by the end, clearly he's aroused and titillated by the experience of the torture and by the death. 
either he's telling us one thing that seems more palatable somewhat, or he changes what he wants. So, you know, I would like a zombie who will then love me exactly the way I want, which in effect means that I don't want to be loved by a human being, which means that it's a weird masturbatory fantasy. If that's the case, then it's not really love. It's not really marriage. Like for me, part of my love for my wife is me doing stuff for her. In, in the story, QP is never trying to love this person. He's only looking for what to get from this person. It doesn't seem like marriage. It just seems like, again, just feels gestural. It's like an incredibly sophisticated genre piece, and the genre piece is there to allow language to exist. And so the thing that is intensely interesting and pleasurable is how the language is working. The actual psychology of it, you know, you got a professor who appears to have dentures. The mom is a cliche. The sister is a cliche. I just don't think that that's how the story is working. Except that those people, we see them through his eyes, and we don't know how clearly he can see. So if we were to allow that, right, if we were to accept that argument that we can't see these characters, then we would also have to say we can't see how else he's loving his zombies. We would then have to accept, oh, we're only getting this part of him, but there's all this other part. You know, so I don't know how much credit we can give that. Yeah. Zombie is usually classified, in a sense, as a horror story. And the zombie is a creature of horror. You know, it's not a real thing. Zombies aren't real things. And in this case, there is actually no invented horror. Mm -hmm. These are humans who are being killed. Um, It's a human doing the killing. There's no dragon. There's no um, Frankenstein. And in fact, I think Joyce said that she wanted to write a piece of fiction in which there was nothing that hadn't actually happened. Given that, is she sort of subverting the the idea of what a horror story is? Uh, I would imagine. I mean, if you think of horror as just supernatural, right, then the, the reason there's a subversion to the story is because whatever is being put into it has happened in real life, right? And so I can imagine a story where you only include things that have happened in real life and that feel like horror, right? So you you, you can easily imagine, you know, the father figure who is a devil, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the, the title suggests something like that. Uh, what the title is doing is taking the weight off or is acting as sort of a buttress, an arch, so the weight isn't falling the way you would expect it to fall. By calling it zombie, what the title is doing is it's directing you to not read it as mimetic fiction. Mm-hmm. Just to wrap up, you have recently gone through the experience of rewriting your first novel, An Obedient Father, and the figure at the center of that novel is also someone morally reprehensible whom you know, you've built a book around in the way that Joyce has built a book around or first a story and then a book around this character. What is the appeal of bringing someone like that into your fiction? For me, I've always felt that the value of a work of art is where it can take you, where you could not go on your own. And so the value of writing about somebody challenging is that it is taking you into a world that you could not imagine on your own. And the value of a work is in direct relation to how far it can take you from where you are. You know, that's sort of how I was raised, like with the books that I I read as a child. Uh, That's one thing. The other reason is um, if you have characters who are doing things that are terrible, the attention, the dramatic action is always going to be around the characters who are active or agents. And so in that sense, it lends itself to uh, being converted into scenes. So good people are boring. <laughs> good people require different structures within fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little bit like how in Gilead, you know, the 
a section will end, you will have basically the character announcing some loveliness inside them, and that provides relief for the reader, and the reader doesn't mind then going into the next thing. It provides a slide into the next thing. Whereas in zombie, uh, you are not sliding, you're being dragged uh, into scenes. Mm -hmm. Dragged with, a, with an ice pick. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Akhil. My pleasure. Joyce Carol Oates has published more than 5,000 books of fiction, including the novels Blonde, The Gravedigger's Daughter, and Breathe, which came out last year. A new novel, Babysitter, will be released later this year. Oates is a winner of the Penn Malamud Award, the Ray Award for the Short Story, and the Jerusalem Prize, among others. She's been publishing fiction and nonfiction in The New Yorker since 1994. Akhil Sharma is the author of the story collection A Life of Adventure and Delight, and the novels Family Life and An Obedient Father, which won the Penn Hemingway Award in 2001. A revised version of An Obedient Father will be published this month. You can download more than 180 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>